Welcome to the Joy Venture Podcast, a show where dreamers and doers share stories of discovering, developing, and spreading their joy with the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Slagle, along with Thad Devassi. In this episode, Thad and I wrap up our interview tour of dreamers and doers in Nashville with a stop at the offices of Exile International. Our intention was to learn how one woman, who herself had experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, was able to take what she learned about brokenness and healing to help vulnerable children devastated by the trauma of war. Bethany Williams is one smart woman. With a PhD in counseling psychology and a master's in clinical social work, she is a leader in the specialized field of war-affected child rehabilitation with worldwide organizations, including the United Nations. In addition, it's her personal experiences, along with her faith and genuine compassion, that makes her one undeniably impactful woman. How do you help restore children who have been abducted, abused, and forced to see things no human should witness? This is the redemptive story Bethany is about to share right now on the Joy Venture Podcast. I just kind of want to start at the beginning um, and, you know, figure out how you, for those that don't know the story, ended up in Central Africa from Nashville, Tennessee and running Exile International. Just how in the world this happened. So tell me a little bit about how this came to be. Um, Well, I... You know, the long story, which I won't tell, but the long story kind of starts when I was a kid, just having a heart for Africa. Um, Loved when the missionaries came to church. I was just like so excited to hear all of their stories. So I'd gone on a couple of short-term mission trips to Africa throughout my life. And then in 2008, um, I went to Africa probably for the third or fourth time, and it was to Congo. So I was a counselor in my profession and uh, went with a group of ladies, and we led a trauma care workshop. Um, So there um, were—it was specifically for ladies who had been living in displacement camps. They were actually living in displacement camps, and they were uh, bussed in from the U.N. And so on that trip, I met kids— that were deeply traumatized because of the war. So the war in Congo has been going on off and on um, for years and years. And I was able to meet children who were literally so traumatized that they couldn't speak. Um, And I met child soldiers for the first time. And I'd heard about child soldiers. I'd been involved in the work of invisible children a little bit. Um, But to actually meet boys that had been abducted and forced to be slaves in captivity and they pulled me aside at one of the orphanages that we um that we visited and they were trying to tell me their story it was almost like this we have someone who could help us we have to this is our chance Mm. and so one of the boys at the very end said and we want to ask you to be our father and he meant to say mother but his english was broken And so um, just walking away from that trip, knowing the deep trauma that these kids had gone through, and most of them thought a flashback was normal. 
and they just thought having nightmares, everyone had nightmares. So, um, and I had been through my own journey through PTSD and trauma and deep depression. And um, I think I just connected to them at that point. Their trauma was, of course, so much deeper than I could ever imagine. But I think that that point of, oh, I know what a flashback is and I know what a nightmare is from trauma. And I so badly want you to know that it can get better and people love you and people believe in you. And most of these kids just thought no one in the world knew about them. And they didn't even think the world knew about the war that was going on or the little village that they came from. And um, so it was on the plane ride back. The Lord just put such a heaviness on my heart with, I don't know what this looks like exactly, but something has to be done and these kids really have to be helped. And my passion from the beginning was partnering with African leaders who who knew what healing looked like for their own children, and they were the experts in their own culture. And um, so the dream from the beginning was art-focused trauma care with a peace-building component because I really believed that the kids could do more than just survive trauma, that if someone really invested them and taught them peace-building and conflict resolution skills and leadership skills, then they could be the next Nelson Mandela's in their countries and the next peace leaders. So that's kind of how it started, not with a grand five-year plan or any money at all. Um, it was this almost crazy passion of people, please listen to me. These kids are being taken, and the world doesn't know about it. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of dove in headfirst and put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. It's not a sexy, glamorous story. It's just like my heart was broken, and I started to put one foot in front of the other. I, I think the best stories are that, that they're sort of unexpected, and they, they sneak up on you. Um, when you when you f- went on that mission, you, you've got a background in counseling and psychology, right? Um, was when you when you went, it was it was the idea to help trauma for women, but, but then mm-hmm. it, the, the the sort of eye opening moment was the pivot to these kids. Is that yeah? The case? And I think um, I just feel like the kids, especially in a situation of war, are absolutely the most vulnerable. Um, most of these kids were orphaned, and so you take a child that has been orphaned in the middle of a war zone. And vulnerable to the point that they're being kidnapped and used as slaves. I mean, to me, that's one of the most vulnerable souls in the whole world. And um, I've always had a deep heart for children. And so um, I think it started with hearing the women's stories and realizing that so many of them were displaced and they just wanted to go home and they couldn't go home because the rebels were there and they had to run. And then seeing so many children in the displacement camps that they visited, that we visited. Um, And a lot of these ladies would care for their own children and then be taking in three or four other orphaned children and living in this, I mean, the size of my closet. It's made out of hay and a UN tarp. And um, and again, just the stories they would tell of trauma and how they had survived it and how they were just um, doing the best that they could. So, yeah, I think... I think the reason why the kids spoke to me so much is because God had put on my heart um, a passion for children um, since I was little. Yeah. You had mentioned um, PTSD and and having that post-traumatic stress disorder and how you thought – you're you're somebody who diagnoses this. You're somebody that that actually treats this, and you had a a point in your life where, wait a minute, I have that same issue myself. Yeah. 
um, you, you go into detail about it in, the, in your book, um, but, you know, no, nobody wants to go through something like that. I mean, obviously, if we can avoid, you know, trauma of any sort, we, we, we would. Did that, even, even being a counselor, did your own personal situation equip you to be perhaps the person with this on your heart to say, I think I can do something about this because of your own experience. I'm curious because you have, there's that moment of like, who am I to help mm, these kids, yeah. you know, in central Africa? I'm just, just a woman from Nashville, Tennessee. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think, um, so I, one of the first things that I did with the organization is write an art focused trauma care workshop um, for kids. And I remember sitting down to write it and not finding very much out there that had already been written specifically on this international for Africa, kids who have gone through trauma. Um, and I started to pull from my education and then I thought, no, what really helped you? Like what helped you find life again? What helped you get over, um, the deep depression and the, and the deep trauma that you experienced. And so much of that was actually written from what I felt like truly helped me to get on the other side of that. So it was a combination of education and experience, but um, it's really hard to know what it's like to survive trauma, a small amount of trauma and a large amount of trauma, unless you've really experienced it. So I still, to answer your question, I still feel like, who am I to like be doing what I'm doing? Um, but I also know that so much of really what I did is just believe in the kids. It wasn't this, I definitely took steps on that, but so much of it was saying that something can be done. And, um, it starts with just thinking that something can happen that isn't happening right now. Yeah. You you mentioned, um, art-based therapy. So as a, as a counselor, what is it about the art that is so powerful. You mentioned that you'd met kids that were just so traumatized they couldn't speak. So kind of ex- explain how that is is the, the sort of key to unlocking what happens next for them. Yeah. Uh, well, first, I, I think the beautiful thing about the work that's done um, through Exile is that it's done in Africa and art, dance, drama, music is just a second language in Africa. And so it flows so well. Um, One of the first things I did is started to do research in countries where children had been kidnapped as child soldiers and there were rehabilitation centers and what were they doing and what helped. So I met with locals who were doing this work. And one thing that kept standing out was art, dance, drama, and music. So from a child, regardless of if they're in America or in Africa, they just only have so many words that they know and so they can only describe things to a certain level and um, the arts dance drama music um, and drawing it's a form of play in a lot of ways and so it's this safe way that the kids can express their trauma their pain their joys their uh, gratitude for being saved physically and then also spiritually um, and it actually bypasses the language part of the brain. So, so when you use art, dance, drama, music, you're using a different part of your brain, literally. And um, 
So you bypass that part of, I don't have the words for this. And separately, even when you've gone through trauma and you're an adult, sometimes you don't have the words to express what you've gone through. I know for me, one of my first counseling sessions, um, for my own journey through trauma, I just kind of sat there. And I literally told my counselor, you're going to have to pull this out of me or something because I don't know where to start and I don't know what to do. Um, And so that's the other reason why I feel like the arts are so powerful in bringing us to that next level of healing. Yeah. So walk walk us through what what you how you how do you make that happen? And I guess the the visual that I that I see in my mind and we'll we'll share on the the website is um, the cloth the the handkerchief sure. that you use um, um, as as one way for them to begin telling their story. Um, talk a little bit about that about yeah. how 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 you use. You know the drawings that that that, that's, that they can't articulate yet, and, mm-hmm. and be able to write things down and see where they are. Yeah, well, the handkerchief um, we ask them to draw on handkerchiefs specifically, and the reason why we do that is because um, handkerchiefs have a lot of different um, purposes, but one of them is to capture your tears or to dry your tears. And so, one we want to make sure that they know their te- tears are valuable, uh, that their pain is valuable. And then also the scripture that talks about God capturing our tears. And the reason why he does that is that they're so precious to him. Our laments are so precious to him. And so we will, we kind of do it in one of two ways. Sometimes we give them two handkerchiefs and then on one they draw their heartaches and their hopes, uh, their heartaches and their sad memories, um, their trauma story basically. Um, And then on the other one, because we don't want to leave them there. Um, we, we use Jeremiah 29, 11, and 12 a lot and just remind them that God does have a plan for their future, and it's not of destruction, but it is of hope. And so then we invite them to draw their hopes and their dreams. So what's life like after trauma, and how can you dream, and what do you feel like God dreams for you? And some of them had never dreamed before. The thought of life after tomorrow wasn't even in their head because— when you have a mindset of survival, then you don't think about what's next year going to look like. And you sure don't think about what's 10 years going to look like. Sure. Um, I'm just curiosity. Like, I can imagine what an American's kid's dreams would be if, if you went to, like, your local yeah. school and had them fill that out. You know, hey, you know, I'm going to go to Disneyland or I'm going to grow up to be, you know, whatever. I'm just curious from a cultural difference. Like, what is a child who's gone through that trauma – typically draw as a hope and dream in Africa? Yeah. Well, one of the first things they draw is them going back to school because they know education is going to help lift them out of poverty. Um, And then they sometimes dream big, like, I want to be president one day so I can change my nation, Um, or I want to be a pastor, or some of them say, I want to work with orphaned children. We had one girl say I wanted to be a psychiatric doctor so that I could actually work with children who survived war because I know that's what helped me. Uh, Some of them say counselors. We actually have six kids who are graduates getting their degrees in counseling right now to come back and work in the programs. That's awesome. Um, And those are kids that never thought they would live past their time of captivity. So it's amazing to think that they're even in university. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of, and their dreams are all different, but it does take them a while to think about, wait, what? And then you kind of see this shift even in their eyes. They go from this very flat, 
you can just see the pain on their face when they're drawing their heartaches because it's dead bodies and guns and burning huts. And this is when my mom was killed and I had to watch her and decapitated bodies. Like, it's really, really hard. There's a lot of blood, a lot of red in the drawing. Um, but you see their their mind, they're kind of, their eyes shift a little bit to dance. You know, they start to glisten whenever they start to draw their hopes and their dreams. And um, so, and the other thing we do is we invite them to draw love or God in the middle of their heartache and in the middle of their hope and their dream. Because we always want to remind them that God was actually with you when you were in the bush. When you were watching your mom die, he was actually with you and holding you, even if you couldn't feel him or sense him. And we talk, you know, we use scripture to, to talk through that. Um, but the same thing with their their hopes and their dreams. God is in the middle of that, and he is dreaming with you, and he's believing in you that you can survive this, but also change your nation um, for good. Yeah. So, so this is an exercise, but... This takes time, right? Yeah, a lot yeah. of time, I imagine. So, so how how do you walk this out with them um, over time? You just mentioned a few minutes ago this idea of we have graduates, which yeah. you know it's like, wait a minute, this is this is a much bigger, in depth, multi pronged um, mm-hmm. approach. And yeah. so, uh, you know, it's one thing to, to to hear you say, "Oh, we come and we help these kids, and they draw on a, on, a, on a handkerchief and." okay, this was bad, and this is good. So what do you do with that? Yeah, so our focus at Exile International is long-term, holistic, rehabilitative care. Um, And so that is healing of spirit and healing of mind and healing of bodies. So in the very beginning, the focus was really just art-focused trauma care and then quickly realized we don't do Band-Aids and we won't do Band-Aids because these kids need somebody to sign up to walk with them until they are really ready to launch into their lives again. Um, So the holistic part is um, a three-tier curricula-based model that that I kind of talked about before. So the first is art-focused trauma care. And then the second is peace-building and conflict resolution skills. And then the third is leadership skills. So we do that in a group setting. And it looks a little different wherever we are. Um, The arts are woven in all of that. So it always starts with dancing and singing and dramas and then we go into kind of the the meat of the curriculum and then we always end in more dancing and singing and dramas <laughs> and um so that's kind of and discipleship of course is woven through all of that as well so that is healing of the spirit and then we added um a second piece which is education which is healing of the mind because we realized these kids will be in poverty forever they may have they may be past their trauma, but if they don't have a skill or a vocation or education, then they'll just be in poverty for the rest of their lives. So then we added our sponsorship program. And so we offer either school education or vocational skills training so they'll be able to graduate and have a job and take care of themselves. And then the third part is healing of body. So that's medical care if they get malaria, if they have a surgery, we have a boy right now in Congo who um, was diagnosed with a brain tumor in January. So that's not in our budget, you know. Um, but we've been walking him through that. He's had brain surgery. He starts uh, radiation next month. Um, most of these kids have been orphaned, and they don't have parents to walk them through all of this. And so our staff, we have about 50 staff overseas, all local leaders, and they act as their guardians in a lot of ways. Wow. 
Wow. How do these? How do you find the kids? I know when when we talk about um, working in Cambodia and and getting the kids that that need to fight the homes and stuff like that. How did these? How do you connect with the kids that that you work with? Yeah, so it's so we work in the countries of Uganda and Congo, and it's a little different in both areas. In Congo specifically, the UN will often rescue the kids, um, or the kids will find a way to escape, and hopefully they will get to a UN center. Um, a lot of the kids that escape just end up being street children, or sometimes they'll go back to the rebel army because that's all they know, and they know that they'll get food there, and they know with a gun they have power. Um, it's kind of like a gang mentality in a way. And then we partner with the UN and the UN partners um, to connect with the kids who've come out of captivity. Uh, sometimes we just have someone who found a street child and they are incredibly traumatized and um, not well taken care of. And so we'll either, one, try to find their parents um, and then to act as their parents if we can't find a family member or someone like that to care for them. Um, but most of the time, it's through partnering with the UN. Okay. So you're working on, on the ground with indigenous people to care for these, these kids uh, and, and, and meeting all of their needs, right? So th- th- I'm, th- this is... Um, I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around um, the depth of what you're providing. I, I think, you know, we know about orphan care. Jeremy and I are involved in that. We understand education. But this is this is all of that and then some with, with the, the, the trauma, the psychological work that needs to go on. So you've been doing this for, what, 10, Ten years? years? Yeah. How, how fast, slow big, not big enough, uh, you know, Yeah, I, I have to imagine this thing just continues to morph for you about, y- you just continue to peel a layer and you see a need and another need and another need because y- you come in from a counseling perspective and like, I can, I can help this. But once you sort of peel that layer back, you realize if I'm really going to help, then I need to do this, which then leads to all these other things. How did you, how did you, Bethany, figure out how to do all of this. I think this is that, that moment of analysis paralysis that had you been told you needed to build all of this, it probably, oh, it man. probably would not have happened, no, right? No, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> if I knew, if you would have opened a door in 2008 and, and basically said, you're going to kind of be in charge of all of this, yeah. I'd say, there's no way. I can't do that. Are you crazy? I would have literally run the other way. Yeah. But... Um, I think that you mentioned the analogy of a tree. It's kind of like that. Like in the very beginning, it's very small. And you're like, oh, I can take care of that tree. Um, but then as the tree grows, you start to love the tree. And so you think, okay, well, I can do that. And then other people start to come around you and catch the vision. And God just led us to amazing local leaders on the ground. And um, a couple of people that God put in my path at the exact time that he needed to so that I would know how to do step one and two and three. And honestly, so much of it is learning from people who've done it before. At the very beginning, I met with a lot of CEOs of nonprofits, and I said, what did you do right and what did you do wrong, and what do you wish you would have done differently? And so I just tried to learn and learn and learn along the way, and we would have 
friends who had nonprofits who were kind of doing similar things or pieces that we hadn't done yet. And so we just met and we learned from them. And we did it really wrong. And then we learned from that. And then we tried to do it better. So it definitely wasn't um, like we didn't have a strategic plan. We didn't have all this stuff. It was just in the beginning, it was just me trying to figure it all out. And, um, and a lot of prayer. And I feel like now we've reached a level of, okay, what does best practice look like? And how can we, um, again, learn from others who are doing it really well? We have a couple of mentoring organizations. Hope International is one of those. And so we'll, uh, we met with them this past year, and we interviewed every member of their leadership team, yeah. just learning and really soaking in their wisdom so that we can better serve the kids that we serve. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the sort of the three three components to what you're doing. And I, I, I'm interested in the second one because it doesn't seem, it seems interesting for us as Westerners to think that you have this sort of, um, you know, peace building and reconciliation component that I think um, from a Western point of view, it's like, well, you, you, you get these kids in a healthy place. And, I, and I'm totally, um, you know, glossing over the depth of this, but it's, it's that, that, that therapy that they need, the education, and then go off into the world and be successful, right? And it's like, it's that American way of like, let's just fix the problem, right? But you have this thing in the middle of, of reconciliation and, and leaders of, of mm-hmm. peace. Talk a little bit about why that's so important and why you have that, where you have that in the model. Yeah. So we have that where we have it in the model because it's so important for them to experience healing first. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you have a bunch of wounded leaders running around, which we don't want at all. Um, And we also realize that traumatized children will grow up to be traumatized adults if if that healing piece doesn't happen. And then the war will just continue. And the peace-building component is so important because so much of why the war is happening is because people don't, I mean, to, to simplify at a very core level, people don't know how to get along. And so... To really teach them what forgiveness looks like what at a young age, what reconciliation looks like, what peace building looks like. And the model that we use, the curriculum that we use, literally goes through true peace building um, activities, how to apologize, what an apology means, how to deal with conflict in a healthy level. And it's all biblically based. So it brings in scripture. Um, because we, the goal for all of them is to be a leader one day, and you definitely want a leader to understand peace building and conflict resolution. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll also say, I feel like that component is why we see so great of a success in our programs. So we did some research, and um, there was actually a 78% decrease in trauma symptoms after two years of being in the program, which is, like, mind-blowing for the level of trauma that these kids have gone through. And I really think most of that is because we really encourage them to dream beyond their wounds. So how can God create purpose for my pain? And um, creating a vision for them to be a peacemaker in their country and that their wounds are not wasted, that God will use those to change their nation. Um, So we actually don't use the term rescue child soldiers with the kids that we work with, we called them young peacemakers. And then the orphaned children that we work with, we never use the term orphan. We call them the hope child. So if you ask them, 
like if you're in the if you go to one of our peace programs or our peace clubs in the villages and you ask them like what are you here they'll either say a YPM a young peacemaker or a hope child so that's how they identify themselves so it helps them actually create a new identity in their mind and value really valuing themselves in a different way I um there was some at some point in your book this I, I read this idea of, of of and we do this I think ourselves all the time that we're defined by our experience and you're working really really hard to unwind that um, or redeem that if you will that that bad things do happen but there is a future um, that you're not because this happened because this happened to you or um, against you, it doesn't define who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, just you mentioned a, m- a moment ago about the people that have come alongside you that catch the vision. What you're doing for these kids seems to me um, extraordinary and a lot of hard work. I also think for people that aren't in that war-torn area that haven't experienced that trauma, but still believe that they're defined by their own bad things that happened in in your life. I'm curious from your perspective, just talking about the work that you're doing in Central Africa, are you finding that, you know, this is rooted in your psych in your your, your psychology and your counseling, is there has there been a a um, residual effect to other people that have like I could find this really valuable for me or mm. the, the, you know, other people that are coming alongside you and like, you know, there's, there's other places where we could use this beyond just where you're using it. And yes, it's focused. Um, but, but just the core tenets of what you're trying to teach. I mean, for, you know, the, what an apology is just hearing you talk about those things. Like we could use a whole lot of that mm-hmm. right here right now too, as yeah. well. I'm just curious how, as people catch the vision and the dream, not only to help where, where you are, but, are are you, you know, as this thing continues to grow and morph, are are you are you picking up on you know other ways in which you could use this, um, any anywhere else beyond right where you are right now? Yeah, well, I think um, so. Yes, to answer your question, uh, the cool thing is that people are being so inspired by the kids themselves. Yeah. So what we hear all the time is that whoa, if a child was forced to kill a family member. If a child was was raped at such a young age, if if you have a kid that's been in captivity for three years and been forced to do the unspeakable, hold body parts or collect body parts, I mean, just horrible trauma, and they can sing and dance like that, or they can dream about helping other people one day or being president of their country or be redeemed or forgive I mean, the stories of forgiveness we hear from these kids are just not of this world. So if they can forgive rebels who were for, who forced them to kill a family member or a parent, whoa, like what am I doing with my life? And so we hear that so often. So it's not even, it, it's not even like my husband and I, who Matthew, we run the organization together. It's not like us inspiring people. It's the kids who are inspiring people, which is great. Um, And so to answer your question again, we have found the model work so successfully. One goal that we have in the next year is putting it in a replicable format so that 
potentially in years to come, we can use that with war-affected children really throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. As someone, again, who has hit a low before coming coming out of it to do the work that you're doing now, is it difficult for you to deal with other people that are in such deep trauma, having been through trauma yourself? And I know that there's healing that comes through that. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering as a lay person, is there, is there a backslide in, mm-hmm. in, your, in your own experience? Like, this is just too much. Mm-hmm. These stories are so painful. And and I, I can see where, on one hand, you're, you're seeing the success. And it's like, I'm moving towards that. But again and again and again, you're meeting people who have experienced the unspeakable. How does that affect your psyche, those that are helping, um, and, and, and their sort of overall mind and well-being? And is that a concern <laughs> of, like, how, how do we... How do we keep those healthy, myself mm-hmm. healthy, yeah. when I'm helping people that are so hurt and broken? Yeah, that's such a great question. I'm so glad you asked that because we um, – so Matthew and I have both experienced burnout. I've experienced it twice. He's experienced it once. Um, and especially in the, in the first two to three years, I experienced secondary trauma. So the stories were so deep and horrific – that I came back from a programming trip not knowing where to put it in my head at all. And we were starting the programs in the beginning, so we didn't have graduates, and we didn't know exactly what we were doing. And so we weren't to that point where we were seeing the kids just, like, skyrocket like we are now. And um, it was hard because it was more like it felt like the darkness was enveloping to a certain degree. Um, and it would have been so easy to give up. I mean, it would have been much, much easier to give up than to push through um, that kind of pain point in growing an organization. And I remember Matthew and I being on a programming trip and one of the girls pulling me aside and just weeping because she was forced to participate in the killing of her mother in captivity. She was forced to collect body parts. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I don't know what to do with this and so I pulled Matthew aside and I said I have to get this out of my head right now I have to tell you what she told me and so part of that having a team and a partner to be able to voice that those traumas with that secondary trauma or just like process with is just so vital Um, so we tell people a lot if you're going to be doing this do it with a team do it with a community people that you can can encourage you or pray with you or especially if you're going into really hard places, um, somebody to process those really hard stories with. Uh, so I think that's important. And what we've learned is how important self-care is. So I say, you know, my phrase is fill up to give out. So if I've been called to give out, I've also been called to fill up. And so what listening to my spirit means, you know, when our team feels overwhelmed, um, how can we care for them? So we literally have a self-care policy on our team. Um, and we lead workshops overseas, caring for the caregiver and how to care for yourself so that you can give out of a healthy place. It's just so vital when you work in war zones and you work with deep trauma. Um, I think it's very underrated maybe, and so, so important. Yeah, I was, 
we were having breakfast this morning and I was talking about how I'm from San Diego, lived in San Diego for a while. I was um, friends with the Russell family, uh, Jason Russell. Oh, yeah. And uh, just the the toll that mm. the drama, the trauma of what he went through yeah. and how that affected him yeah. was just insane. Yeah, I know. And 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 he, what a redemption story. I mean, look at what he's doing now and how he's overcome it and yeah. how he went through a really deep time. And now he it's not stopping him and his family. I think it's yeah. – but how important it is, too, to really have that community kind of around you. Yeah, yeah, it's – it's it's important and it's essential not just for people that have gone through difficult things. It's that community, whether it's whether it's your your faith community or your art community or whatever it happens to be, to be able to, like you said, speak that out, work through that stuff. And I feel like in today's world of of social media connectedness, yeah, uh, where we feel like we have access to anybody we need to talk with, is the probably the most lonely generation we've ever had. Yeah, it's so true. Well, and I think it's connected, like I'm quoting right now, right. Um, with my fingers, um, because it's, just, it's kind of a false sense of connection to a certain degree. It's, it can be beautiful and wonderful in so many ways, but um, I think that it's very easily to have a false sense of connection there. And there's nothing like sitting some, with somebody and looking them in the eye and weeping with them. And um, there's, you can't replace that with a tweet. Yeah. Yeah. Can, um, can you just give us a little perspective of the magnitude? And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we're talking Central Africa, we're talking Congo and Uganda. Um, if, if people aren't, dialed into what's really going on there <clears throat> when we talk about war and child soldiers and, and rebels that may be foreign, obviously, to some people. But what, like, just the sheer volume of kids that are in this situation as w- and then the number of kids you've been able to help so far, I mean, what would kind of give us a sense of the magnitude of what you're looking at and yeah. what you're dealing with and why this is so important. Sure, yeah, it is so important. Um so it's not something that a lot of people know about. It's not something you turn on your TV and, and you're hearing about. Um, so in the countries of Uganda and Congo, there have been around 100,000 kids who have been taken. Um, and that's through multiple different rebel groups. So even in Congo alone, there are over 30 documented rebel groups. And it seems incredibly overwhelming. Um, in the world, there are around 250,000 child soldiers. And they're kidnapped for multiple reasons. I mean, I think obviously if you can brainwash a child and train them up to use a gun and tell them what to do at 12 years old, then they don't think they can say no to you, especially if you're holding a gun to their head. Um, The concept of just go ahead and kill me really isn't in their head because they're 12. So um, they're also used as sex slaves. Girls and boys are kidnapped. Um, They're also used as porters, as spies, so the, it, it's pretty massive in terms of the problem. We, we work, so Congo is, is a huge country the size of Western Europe, and we um, are in a, even a small portion of that country. We're, we have a hub, which is Goma, Congo, and then we also work in the surrounding villages. But just in the area that we work, there are around 100 kids who are rescued every month. Um, and, you know, we don't have room, of course, to take in 100 kids every month. So um, a lot of those kids become street children. 
again, I think I mentioned before, or, or they will go back to the rebel army, kind of like a revolving door. Um, the, the really heartbreaking thing to me is that so many of the girls who are kidnapped don't, don't get out because they'll often have babies because they're sex slaves at, at young, young ages. They're called wives. They're called like the rebels' wives is what the, what the term is. And, um, and so it's easy to escape. Not easy. It's easier to escape if you're just one. But if you have two children and you try to escape... Um, plus, you have multiple roles. You're a cook. You're a slave. You go into the field sometimes, um, and, and whenever there's a battle, sometimes the girls will also carry guns and be expected to um, to fight. So, some of the younger children who are kidnapped who are too really small to hold a gun are placed sometimes on the front lines to act as a human shield, um, and so that is most heartbreaking, I think, to me. So it's a massive problem, and I think that, um, you know, part of what we do is the work on the ground. Part of what we do is awareness and just trying to get the word out there that this is happening and the problem is as massive as it is. Are are things, as you look at it 10 years later, are things better than they were 10 years ago? Are they worse than they were two years ago? Like the, the, um, the, in, uh, invisible children and bringing that to light and, um, the, the work that Katie Davis is doing and other people over there, is it helping? I mean, is it, what kind of impact is that having yeah, 10 that, years uh, later? Yeah, I think you're exactly, are, are you, are, is your progress moving faster than the rebels? Oh yeah, no, I want to say yes, but it's such a massive problem. We have, um, around 1,600 kids in our program right now in two countries, um, but at a rate of 100 kids being rescued a day, I mean a month, mm-hmm. you know, you can only imagine. Um, invisible children really put the issue on the map. It was huge. The, the great thing is in Uganda, the war is no longer happening, which is great. The LRA are still abducting children at a lesser rate than they did, say, 10 years ago, which is great. Um, and a lot of people think, oh, that's super, so it's getting better. But what people don't know is there are, you know, so many rebel groups. There's not just one rebel group. And they're all fighting for kind of different reasons. Um, so we're hopeful, you know. I think um, I think that the awareness piece really needs to reach an astronomical level for people to understand the actual degree of um, problem. So, but awareness alone doesn't solve the problem. Like, what, what solves the problem? Yeah. Well, I think um, so. That's a really long conversation. <laughs> but um, in Congo specifically, there is a dictator basically that acts as a president. That he was actually supposed to step down um, last year, didn't step down. So the riots are happening, and there's just all of this kind of geopolitical component to it all. Um, the largest UN peacekeeping mission is actually in Congo. So as far as how to get the kids out of the bush, um, the UN is certainly doing a good job. Um, I think that it would have to come probably from the government, and the government is corrupt. And then um, there are certain things that the world can do to help kind of push that along Um in terms of sanctions and things like that. But again, when you have a dictator, 
as your president, um, it's a major problem. So, so to answer your question, we need to pray a lot. Yeah. I mean, we need, we need to pray. This sounds like a, our podcast is called Joy Venture. This doesn't sound very (laughs) joyful, Um, but I want to get back to what this, you know, put it back on you just for a moment and, you know, going back to your childhood and the missionaries that came through and then your decision to be a counselor the journey that you're on, um, what you've discovered, how you've developed this, and now you're you're trying to spread this word um, to others to get involved, to help, to support whatever way they can. And and we know not everyone is is going to be equipped or courageous enough to do the thing that you're doing. I think a lot of people would just be freaked out. I mean, just listening to this mm-hmm. and thirty rebel groups and you know, fighting in the, in the, in the forest, in the bush. I mean, that's scary stuff, but you've kind of put your neck out there. Why, why, why? I mean, I, I know that you've, I mean, there's, this is your journey and you're so passionate about it. And there, you've, there's been many times along the way where you, the trauma has probably been so heavy, as you said, it's like, mm-hmm. I can't deal with this anymore. What keeps you going? What makes, where's the joy in this for you? Mm-hmm when there's so much pain wrapped in it. Yeah. Well, yes. So first I want to say there is deep joy in this because that was just a heavy conversation that we came out of. But we, there is absolutely nothing like seeing child survivors of war dance and sing and jump up and down. And um, we've got lots of videos on the website of that happening. So if you've, you're feeling blue, just go there and watch these kids dance their butts off because it's just <laughs> awesome. And so much of it is because they've survived this. Like they're in the middle of healing and they know that God has a plan for them and they know that they can um, change their nation and change their community. So there's deep joy in it. Um, there's deep joy in watching Shakuru who has the brain tumor, speak for the first time when he hasn't spoken in like a month um, because someone believed in him and said, you are not just an orphaned child that you're, we're just going to let you die with this brain tumor. We were like, no, we see the value in you. And so there's so much joy every day in our work and especially on the ground. Um, And one, that's what keeps us going for sure. Like the hope in it all. I had a mentor in the very beginning, um, and I asked her, how do you keep going back into these hard places? And it was when I was experiencing the secondary trauma, and she said, you know, I just choose to live in the hope. And that was a turning point for me. I can choose to live in this deep darkness trauma, or I can choose to see the hope. And so that was kind of a turning point for me. Um, And I also think what keeps us going, Matthew and I kind of talk about this a lot, Um, my husband we really believe if a child has been orphaned or abandoned in some way, that that child becomes a child of the church. And so that child becomes our child. Um, and I get teary about this because I'm so passionate about it, but we would not look at our own children and say, you are true, trauma- true traumatized. Yeah. I don't know what to do with you. You're just, you've been wounded too much. We would never do that. And so our commitment is to never do that to a child that's in our program. 
We will never say you are too broken because God would never say that. God would never say you are too broken. Um, so that's what keeps us going. Wow. Thank you. This is, it's been a great discussion and I'm looking forward to sharing this with other people. Um, I want to ask one last question. You went and talked to all of these people that came before you, the CEOs of other organizations and said, what would you do different? And I'm sure you would do some things different, you know, trial and error you learn. But looking at the big picture, would you do it different? Would you have not done this if you didn't have to do this? I mean, now, now that you're, <laughs> you're 10 years in, right? Would you do this again? Yeah, yeah, a million times over. And I say that after getting, and we haven't talked about this, but um, I have something called river blindness because I was bitten by a black fly in Congo a couple years ago, actually two years ago this week. I was in the hospital for a week and had malaria plus another virus and had pneumonia, almost became septic. So, like, it's definitely been a road of trials, but... Even at all that, I would say, you know, when you have, we've been able to work with around 3,000 children since the very beginning. When you look at that and you, and you fast forward 10 years of those 3,000 children's lives and 20 years, and then you see their kids, it's just, of course, it's worth it. Like, it's all worth it. We are so thankful to Bethany and her husband, Matthew for sharing this life-affirming story and allowing us to pour over some of the art therapy pieces created by the children as they heal and are primed to become future leaders in their part of the world. If you want to learn more about Bethany's organization, you can find a few links on our podcast page for this episode, along with some of the art therapy work. You can also check out her organization directly at exileinternational.org. If you like what you're hearing on the Joy Venture podcast, we'd love to know about it and love it even more if you'd share it with others. If you like or follow us on your favorite platforms, it will help others who are looking to discover their joy to discover this podcast. To hear more podcasts or read posts that are meant to nudge the dreamer in all of us to become the doer we were meant to be, visit us at joyventure.net. If you've discovered your joy but feel stuck on how best to develop it, you've come to the right place, as that's what Thad and I do for our day jobs. Feel free to drop us a line through the website, and we'll talk. Until next time, remember... Never stop discovering. Thanks for listening.